MSW Media. How worried should we be about the Omicron variant? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. And we want to thank the people who have supported us throughout our time in this podcast, including uh, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. So thank you all for your support. And I got to say, Patty, I really was hoping that we wouldn't need to have another discussion like this one. I was kind of hoping this was going to be in our in our rearview mirror. And I don't think that's unreasonable to hope that because we have the tools, we have everything necessary in order to slow the spread. We have vaccinations, we have masking and social distancing. We have all the guidelines that the scientists, the specialists, uh, you know, people who know a lot more than we do about these things have told us would mitigate this. And, uh, and it's just, it's really frustrating. Uh, I have one friend who's in the ICU who was vaccinated and I don't want to scare people because there are different levels of immune system. And my friend is, uh, was a immune compromised for most of his life and um, is not ventilated, thankfully, but uh, it's, it's just terrifying. Uh, I, and I just, while uh, we were setting up here, uh, my producer told me that their daughter was uh, also, oh, their son tested positive. This is, this is going to hit everybody. I think this wave feels much more intense than even the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. I have to say, Patty, that, you know, given that, you know, we are, my family is not only vaxxed, but boosted, you know, we, we were feeling good about where we were at just a, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And, you know, I think we were all feeling, okay, we've got our boosts. We're, we're safe. We can, you know, feel good about that and and focus on other things in our lives. And now we're starting, I'm sure, and I know you're, you're, I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing I am where people we know are getting infected uh, the, the numbers are on the rise and it doesn't appear that, uh, being boosted, uh, is, is gonna, is going to uh, prevent us from, uh, from, uh, you know, potentially catching this if we're out in public. Right. And it's, it's just, uh, it's very hard to not be frustrated with people who are not only, because we talk about being vaccine resistant or hesitant, but there are people who are outright, as we see with these teachers, these, you know, in situations with teachers and school boards, they're outright belligerent about it. Uh, And, um, you know, I don't know if, I I just don't know what it's going to take to, to slow this down. I really don't, I guess we should find out more. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, on that, yeah, and on that note, we're going to be bringing in now Dr. Roby Bhattacharya. And, you know, Dr. Roby uh, came and spoke to us m- several months ago, early this year, right as the vaccines were coming out and we were talking about the efficacy of the vaccines and what they would do. And that was a time of great hope and great excitement. Uh, I did not, I was hoping that we would not need to bring Dr. Roby back. Um, but I'm glad that he's going to be joining us because he, I think he brings a really valuable perspective as somebody who is a doctor, a physician at Mass General, at Mass, Massachusetts General, one of the best uh, hospitals in the United States. He's an infectious disease doctor. So this is his specialty. And he also teaches at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, so a very uh, learned guy on this topic and somebody who I know from our conversation last time. Uh, spent a lot of time on the front lines and in, in his in, in you know caring for people with COVID. Um, so I, hopefully he can help us make sense of this variant. What we should do and so get give us some practical advice for how to deal with some of the difficult decisions we're going to need to make in the weeks and months ahead. So let's bring in Dr. Roby Bhattacharya. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Bhattacharya. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Renato. It's good to be back. I have to say, I wish you were uh, joining us for a better reason. Uh, I think uh, last time that we talked, we were just, uh, you know, immunizations were just uh, becoming a thing. We, uh, we were all excited about, uh, you know, me and Patty were excited about getting, uh, getting vaccinated. And I think there was a period of time in the middle of this year where a lot of us and many of our listeners were really excited and hopeful that things were turning back to normal. And, I, I, you know, now with the rise of the Omicron variant, uh, things have changed. And I, I just think as a starting point, one thing that uh, I think is on everyone's minds is how much should we be worried about this variant? Uh, you know, how how worried should should the public be? It's a good question. It's an important one. And it's still early days. I mean, this has come on us so fast that we're still learning kind of day by day here. So I guess I'd even take a step back and say that even before the Omicron variant came along, that Delta changed things for us, right? Things were heading in a real, you know, good direction. We thought summer was going to be nice. And as you said, you know, back back towards normal. Um, And I think that had Delta not come along, they, I think they would have been. Alpha was disappearing. You know, vaccines were rolling out fast and Alpha was clearing quickly. And at least for the summer, I felt good that that was going to stay true. And then, you know, we got word from India in April and May that they were just getting devastated. And as, as soon as it became clear that was a variant, I think there was a, a concern of what that would do. It was much more transmissible, um, maybe cause slightly more severe disease. But the real difference was just that it was so much more transmissible that 60% vaccination wasn't enough to stop it. And so it was circulating. And that led to a surge here, even in the middle of our summer. And I think that really changed how our summer went. And so now I had anticipated kind of a rough winter already. I think this is a seasonal virus. Every other respiratory coronavirus has seasons and it, they peak from November to February every year. And so I was already worried going into this winter about cases rising. Um, you know, with the vaccinations that we have, I, I was hopeful, certainly in the better, in the places where the most vulnerable were well vaccinated. I was hopeful that wouldn't translate into a lot of hospitalizations, wouldn't translate into a lot of deaths. And I think that's what things have sort of looked like by and large, certainly here in the Northeast. Cases are really high. They're almost as high as they were last year, but hospitalizations are not and deaths certainly are not. So the difference, and I think we had a feel for it, it was trouble. Like this winter was, was looking like trouble. So what has changed with the Omicron variant is much faster growth and um, more uh, trouble for our vaccines. Like they don't work as well as they did a month ago because this variant has enough mutations that, um, you know, it's not so much that we're back at square one, but it's enough that they're not going to be as effective. I think that's already quite clear. Wow. Well, that's, that's not, not good news. Uh, I have to say, I think one thing that a lot of folks at home are wondering is whether or not this is going to be sort of a perpetual battle. Are we going to be dealing with COVID for the rest of our lives? Uh, and 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 what, what would a world, you know, what 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 would what would that look like? It, it's a really important question, and I think <laughs> the right answer is probably it's still too early to know. Um, so I guess I think about this in a number of ways. I think first of all, it depends on who you are, right? What whether you still have how much you're going to have to worry about COVID for a long time. So I think that when I say vaccines are not going to be as effective against the Omicron variant, mostly what I mean is. I think it's quite clear already that even vaccinated people are going to be at higher risk of becoming infected and of spreading Omicron than they would have been of Delta. We already knew that vaccines were not perfect against Delta, but they were quite good. Boosters were awfully close to, nothing's perfect. They were really, really good against Delta. Now I think we're in a position where three doses of a vaccine, so a boosted immunity against Omicron is about as good as two doses used to be against Delta, which is to say really helpful but not perfect. I think even two doses will be good against severe disease. I, you know, we're still learning that. I can't say that for, with certainty, but it was both my expectation going in. And I think it fits with the early data that we've seen is that prior in, immunity from prior infections, immunity from prior vaccine series is probably going to hold up and at least stop people from getting severely ill most of the time. But that won't be true for people with immune deficiencies, right? So um, people who aren't able to mount good responses to vaccines, um, we're kind of relying on the people around them not spreading it as much, you know, to keep them safer. And that's, I think, no longer 
true in the short term, right? Once we're all infected by Omicron, we'll get good immunity to Omicron again, most likely. And we don't know this for sure yet, but that would be my guess, um, just because it hasn't been long enough. We haven't really been able to see if people get reinfected. Um, but I expect that like Omicron will produce immunity to Omicron. And then your question was, can it just do this again? Can it do this perpetually? So I, I don't think we know yet, um, but there are some reasons to think it won't do this forever. Um, so in order to, if it could just, viruses will continue to mutate and it could keep evading antibodies and there can always be another step, but it still has to do some jobs to be a virus, right? So there's the spike protein on the outside of the virus that has to bind a protein on our cells and it has to, it has to be recognized in order to get into our cells, in order to infect us. That binding event has been really tolerant of mutations in a way that's more than I would have expected you know, even literally it's more than I would have expected a month ago. I wouldn't have expected something this different than what we'd seen before to even work anymore. And it does, but I don't think it's going to be able to do that infinitely. So I, you know, at this point, I'm not, I'm definitely not going to say there won't be another thing like this, but I think I'm, I wouldn't expect it to be forever. Um, but this put the sort of end game farther away, I think, than I would have hoped it might have been a year ago, a month ago, a month ago, I would have hoped we get through a rough winter, then a lot of people build up immunity, whether they, you know, whether through vaccination or through infection, and things slowly start to get better through through the early part of next year, and maybe stay that way. Now, I think this is a setback. It's a fast moving one. And I think it remains to be seen how it hits us through the winter. I think it sets us up for a worse winter. And again, I think people either who've chosen not to get vaccinated or who don't respond well to the vaccine are going to have a much harder time avoiding this. Um, that it was hard enough to avoid Delta. I think it'll be harder to avoid this. Why is that, by the way? And I, I, there's other question I want to get to, but I, I'm curious, why is, why is Omicron hard, you know, harder to avoid? Sure. So I think a lot of it is just pace of spread. I actually, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not a medical historian by training, but I sort of, I think this is the fastest spreading pathogen in history. <laughs> we went from hearing about it for the first time less than four weeks ago to it being the dominant strain half a world away. And I think part of that is like world travel now. Um, but part of that is it's just really contagious, right? So it is spreading as well now as the original SARS-CoV-2 did when nobody knew anything and nobody knew to avoid it, right? So like as fast as the first virus was spreading in New York City in March 2020, that's how fast this is spreading in like the UK and Denmark here in the US, despite all that we know, despite all the immunity we recruit. It's just really contagious. Um, and so the other reason it's going to be harder is like, even with Delta, when vaccinated people could spread it, it was much less likely. And so you were more able to find pockets of your life where you could go about and do things. And if everyone you were hanging out with was vaccinated and you're immune suppressed, you're probably, you're much less likely to encounter it. Whereas now kind of everybody is at risk of spreading it again, boosted people less so, but even twice vaccinated people, almost as much as unvaccinated people are at risk of spreading it. So it's just, I think, I think we're going to see case counts rise over the next couple of months. And I think it's just going to be harder to like hang out with people, you know, are quote safe. Right. So I think it's just going to be harder to avoid. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's obviously very alarming. I think a lot of us had felt safe, uh, you know, in groups of people who are fully vaccinated. And I, we had this booster coming. It's like, okay, well, now we all, now we've all been boosted. Okay. Now we felt like we were protected again. And now you're basically telling us that that's not going to, that's not going to cut it either. Right. So I think, and I think it's clear that we have to decide on what we mean by safe too. And this is going to be a moving target. So I think if you're a young, healthy, boosted person, you're probably safe from severe disease. At least it's going to be a really unlikely outcome of an infection, but you're not safe if you're spouse is immune compromised. If you want to visit your elderly grandparents, even if they're vaccinated, right? Like I think you're not going to be able to be confident that you can't transmit this right now, right? Like where Omicron goes in three months, I don't know, maybe we have Omicron specific boosters by then, maybe we've all been infected. And so we all have immunity from infection and things might change. But at this moment in time, I think, you know, it's, it's just really good at, at infecting people. And of course, you know, there are people who are very resistant to getting vaccinated. They say, well, if you're vaccinated, what do you care about what I do? So how much is the fact that about 30 to 40 percent of eligible Americans refuse to get vaccinated? How does that affect the spread? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I think the, the 
way I try to think about it, and it's really hard to know. So right, we can count the people who are not vaccinated. It's hard to count the people who really have no immunity, right? That means have never been, who by now don't, haven't been infected and are not vaccinated. I think it's clearly quite a bit. It's clearly more than say South Africa where this first emerged. And it's really important for both how much it spreads and also how much it hurts our society, how much it fills up our hospitals, how many people are going to die because of it, right? So you know, South Africa, they're getting, a, they got a ton of cases. They got, quickly got as many cases as they had had with prior waves. They did not have as many people getting sick yet and as many people dying yet as they had with prior waves. On the other hand, almost nobody was even getting Delta anymore. They had, they had cleared it. It was summertime for them. But um, but also they had a lot of accumulated immunity. They've only about 25% vaccinated, but a lot of infections. Um and so it just, Delta was gone. Nobody was dying of Delta anymore. And people are now dying of Omicron. So like they saw a relative increase. We were having, a, we've had a thousand people die a day for four straight months now. And I think that's going to go up um, because we have a more transmissible virus that is probably going to find those, you know, they were almost all unvaccinated and probably non-immune and it's going to find them faster and make them sick in a shorter period of time. And so I think it's going to really, I think it is, I expect it to strain our hospitals in a way, at a time when we really can't afford that. So in terms of spread, I think honestly, even, even people with two prior doses, but six months ago are probably just as likely to spread it or almost as likely to spread it as unvaccinated people. But people who are unvaccinated, I think are much more likely to end up in the hospital, taking up a bed that we don't have, taking up staffing that we don't have to spare. And and so I think it is still going to really matter um, who's, who's, who has immunity and who does not for like, not just those people but for our society. Right. And, and you, you mentioned that uh, it puts a strain on our healthcare system. And this is the part that we have said, this is a pandemic now amongst, amongst the unvaccinated. But if you have, you know, just a, or no ICU beds left in a community, that means that I'm guessing people who need life-saving care won't receive it. Is that accurate? That is unfortunately a case that we have faced. Um, you know, there have been states that Alaska, Idaho, in the, in, in the past, during the Delta surge, like in the summer months, we're already declaring you know, crisis standards of care, which means they have to literally triage who gets cared for and who doesn't based on bed availability. And like, I heard about this. I was on service back in April, 2020, April 1st to 14th. I'll never forget. And we got a lecture just about the possibility of this. And just hearing about that was traumatizing, right? They told us that ethically they wouldn't prioritize physicians. That was like hard to hear, but makes sense from an ethical standpoint, right? Like just even, but even thinking about having to triage care. So to be 20 months, 20 three months into this and thinking that we are still having these conversations is really hard to hear. But yes, there is a finite amount of, you know, care that can be provided in our hospitals. Some of it's bed availability. It's not really ventilator capacity anymore. We've scaled that up. It's mostly workforce at this point, right? Like this is a workforce that has limits and you can't, man, you can't like scale up the defense production act to make more nurses or respiratory therapists. There's, there's a limit to what we can do. And, and I worry that with a virus that looks as contagious as this, that, we're, we may be pushing that limits in, in places, especially in places where high-risk people are not well vaccinated. Folks want to know if you have any sense of when uh, children under 16 can be vaccinated. Uh, bo- boosted, boosted. Boosted, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I know that some studies are ongoing and, um, and that the FDA is considering this. You know, I, I think that there's a, a lot of things that play into that decision. Um, one of them is that... F- you know, how much we ba- we weigh the risks to those individuals versus the risks to their community, right? Because kids fortunately do tend to have less severe outcomes than adults. <clears throat> um, there are also side effects to some, you know, rare, but, but real side effects to some of the messenger RNA vaccines, where especially puberty age boys are at risk for a, a particular kind of, it's one in 10,000 kids, but it's not nothing. And so I think it, we have to really carefully weigh risks and benefits. On the other hand, like if, if a kid lives at home with an immunocompromised mom, this could be a really important thing, right? The other thing is that kids have better immunity. So they actually, all the data that we know of like vaccines waning, that's mostly from adults and it may happen less quickly with kids. But I think this, I hope it comes soon. I hope that it's a decision left to, you know, to, to parents about boosting in terms of, uh, you know, what, what, what's their scenario, what's the right thing for their child and for their child's environment. Um, if it was, you know, if it was my daughter in, in the, you know, in that, in that age range, I definitely want to boost them. 
them or lose her right away, if it's my son, I'd want to think hard about what their risks are, what their community, you know, what their sort of surroundings are. But it's going to really, I think it's going to really reduce incidents um, in the Omicron era. So I hope it comes, I hope the option comes soon. But I, I haven't heard, I don't have any inside information on that. So one thing I've just, I, I, I'm curious about, you know, you talked a little bit about how staff availability of medical personnel is part of the issue. You know, one thing I will confess is there's a member of my family who's an infectious disease doctor, and I think he's going to be taking an early retirement soon uh, because it's just this past, you know, year and a half has taken a, a great toll on him. I'm curious for yourself, you've, you know, I, you know, had to endure quite a bit. I know the last time you we were here, you talked a little bit about that. What impact has this had on you and others who have been uh, just on, on the front lines of this? Yeah, it, it's um, it is hard to describe. It is life changing. Like even just two weeks on service in April of 2020 was already life changing. And so to see this go on as long as it has is is hard to describe. And it's different for different people. I, I have a job in an academic medical center that's a mixture of clinical care and research. It's been dominated by clinical care more than it would have been in any other two-year stretch. But I still am fortunate that this, this is not the only thing I'm doing. And I honestly have the endless respect for those for whom it is. I, I can't imagine folks who are in training right now where they're literally the word is house staff because they used to, or residents, because they used to literally live in the hospital. It's not quite true anymore, but they're doing this day in and day out. For some of them, this is all of their medical training has been just seeing patients. For nurses who are at the bedside, eight, 12-hour shifts for a year and a half, two years, early on, not knowing what risk they were taking on themselves, many of you know, many of them getting sick, some of them dying. It's, it's hard to describe. And that has, it, the, the challenges have changed also, right? Like early on, there was a lot of community support, um, shall we say, and folks clapping at 7 p.m. I think the patients who get sick, the patients who are disproportionately getting badly sick now have a different view towards healthcare um, and and the illness that has not, that has made it, I think, interpersonally more challenging for, for caregivers. Um, it's actually something that in the Boston area, I've not had to personally deal with much. And if, although, I, you know, last time I was on service, just a, you know, a few weeks ago, I was still dealing with, you know, still seeing unvaccinated patients who were getting quite ill, but at least in this area, I wasn't, it wasn't being thrown at me in, in, in a sort of negative way. And the way that I've heard about it for colleagues, I think there's so many things about this that are challenging and burnout is real and moral hazard where you're not able to provide the kind of care that you wish you could, or you're seeing people die of a vaccine preventable illness um, is not to be understated. It's really hard. And I can't blame um, your family member for for making that decision. It's a really hard time. It's it's I hope the hardest time, stretch of my career clinically. Wow, that it that is rough, and I and I and I have to think that a big portion of this is is due to people who are unvaccinated. I, I have to say I have members of my own family who have, are have been misinformed, have been deceived, and have have made that choice for themselves, a choice that has an impact on others. Um, what, what impact has that had, that this sort of growing movement to um, refuse vaccines and to not take proper precautions to protect themselves and others, of course, uh, from, the, uh, from the virus? Yeah, it's, I like the way you frame that, Renato. It's, I think it's a really concerning movement. I think it is a problem. I think the, the vast majority of, of folks in that vote are, I would say, you know, deceived, as you put it, or, or misinformed. Um, I think there's probably a small number of folks acting not in good faith that are, that are propagating a lot of this. But I think most people, it's bewildering, right? Like the, the information environment out there is bewildering. The vaccines came fast. I think it has somehow become polarized in ways that I can't say I didn't see coming at all, but I certainly didn't see coming to this extent. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's hard to describe how much of a difference it makes, right? Like a person, despite the fact that we're vaccinating them, the high, we're deliberately vaccinating the highest risk people disproportionately, right? Like we started with the elderly and the immunocompromised. They're still by far the most vaccinated. It is still the case that you are much more likely to die if you're not vaccinated, even though you're sort of on average lower risk, right? It's just, these are such, against severe disease, these are still such effective vaccines. It's the single, it's not, it's not the only thing that one needs to do anymore, unfortunately, um, if it ever was, but it, it, they are still the single most effective tool we have against this. And 
to see them politi politicized, honestly, sort of every part of this has been, right? Masks are politicized. Um, I, everything about this has been polarized in a way that I uh, really regret and don't know how to stop. <laughs> yeah, one thing, I, let's talk a little bit about masks for a second, because I got to say, you know, that's something that I think there's been a lot of, uh, I think at this point, some confusion about. In other words, how... <clears throat> At this stage of the game with, with the vaccines and boosters, how important is masking? What role does that play in, you know, retar or now is there slowing down the spread of the disease? I think there's still a large role for them, honestly. And, and I think that I, we, we talked about this a little bit last time I was on, right? That I've been, I'm vaccinated against measles and that's actually a vaccine that holds up much better over time, right? The, the measles virus isn't mutating in the same way that SARS-CoV-2 was. But if I were to go in to see the, a room with a, of a patient with measles, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I'd wear a mask. I'd, I'm required to. Because if you know you're going to encounter a virus, you know vaccine is perfect. So when there's this much virus around, like no one layer is enough to, to stop transmission. And so um, even before Omicron came along, you know, in public, I was still masking. In part, this is because when I'm on clinical service, I'm seeing immune compromised people. You know, I'm not saying that at all times everybody had to do this, but I think with Omicron around, there is so much and the vaccines are relatively so much less protective that I think this is very clearly a both and kind of situation where one layer of protection is not enough. And again, you know, I'm sort of, I'm viewing this from the perspective of doing everything one can to reduce spread, because I think we're, we're there as a, country again, where we kind of need to do that for the sake of our hospitals. And whether this is true next summer, I hope not. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to be masking indefinitely in public spaces for all time. I, I don't think that's going to be true. But for this winter, when reducing spread, I think has to be a priority again, or at least I hope it will be. You know, I, I think it takes more than just vaccinations. It even takes more than vaccines and boosters. Again, I think vaccines plus boosters are going to get you about you know, the best data, it's early, but out of the UK, are they're about 75% protective against infection. Um, so that's about where two shots were against Delta a month ago, right? And that was not enough to be perfect. That's pretty far from perfect. It's not where we had hoped to be at this stage. Um, it's as good as we can be, I think, from vaccines alone. And I think for me, that means also masking when I'm in you know, high risk settings. I'm not masking at home with my family, um, but I'm masking in public. I'm masking at work. Um, I'm not masking alone in my office with the door closed in a well-ventilated office, um, but I am masking in public spaces. I'm eating, you know, I think eating is a real challenge. I have an office that, with a door that closes. I'm eating in my office, but not everybody has that. And it's cold to eat outside and people just try to do their best. You know, nobody can do this perfectly, but the more steps that you take, whether that's you know, certainly, you know, vaccinating, masking, thinking about who you're around and taking more precautions if they're immune suppressed or someone who lives at home with you is, um, you know, being in a better ventilated space. It's, it's not just one thing. It's, it's, it's the Swiss cheese model of every, every layer you put up helps. You know, I also think this can't, this shouldn't be, this can't be the only thing in our lives that we think about. But unfortunately, if we don't think about it at all, then there's going to be a lot of consequences. And this is a most unfortunate place to be 22, three months into this, but it is where we are. What, uh, one thing I'm curious, since you're talking about eating, at this stage of the game, are you not eating out? Like you, you wouldn't go to a restaurant, for example, and eat? Yeah. And I can tell you a little about my home situation. So my, my wife is also a physician. We're both vaccinated and boosted. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old daughter. The six-year-old is vaccinated. She was as, first as, as early as we could get her. I think she was like the third day that it was eligible because that was the soonest appointment we could get. And anecdotally for your listeners, she did just fine, no side effects. My three-year-old is not eligible um, and probably won't be for a couple months yet. Um, there was a bit of a setback in the Pfizer trial. It sounds like they didn't meet an endpoint. So what I was hoping was weeks away is probably more like months. So, you know, if he gets it, He'll probably not get badly sick. Most kids don't. On the other hand, it's a top 10 leading cause of death in kids under five. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not eating out um, in, in restaurants. We were, eat, we were eating outdoors um, when the weather permitted, but I haven't been indoors to eat. And that's just our decision because we'd rather, we're this close, we've come this far. I would rather my kid sees COVID for the first time with immunity um, than not. And I think that I'm resigned to the fact that we're all probably going to see it at some point. Um, but I would rather have my six-year-old daughter calls vaccines practice. I would rather they have practice before they see the real thing. And, you know, my three-year-old isn't eligible to have that practice yet. I'd like to get him there. I don't know that we're going to be able to, honestly, like, I think that Omicron is so contagious that we might not. And if we can't, we can't. I'm not, 
going to lock him in his room. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not eating indoors in public. Um, and I think a lot of folks that, and maybe I'm on the conservative end of the spectrum. I, I wasn't before, but I was happy to eat outside. Um, I think even a lot of the folks I know who were eating indoors in public are not anymore in the last literally week or two since Omicron has, has taken over. Yeah, it definitely seems like a game changer. Patty, do we have any more questions from our listeners? Let's go first with a, another question about vaccinations. How protected are those who received the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and a Moderna booster? Ah, good question. So the J&J vaccine alone, probably very, very little against infection. The I don't have data on this directly, but the data from the UK showed that the AstraZeneca vaccine, the best estimate, the point estimate for efficacy was literally 0%. Um, whereas two doses of Pfizer was 30% and three doses of Pfizer was about 75%. Effective, protecting from, in, from any degree of infection, right? There's probably for all of those, even AstraZeneca, there's probably going to be some protection against severe disease. Um, usually in other cases, J&J has fallen somewhere between AstraZeneca and Pfizer. So I'd say that alone would be somewhere between 0% and 30%, not doing a lot for you, at least to stop you getting infected at this stage. Um, but it probably still protects against severe disease. That would be my hunch based on sort of immunology, not based on data at this point, just based on what I would expect. Um, and so boosting, boosting definitely helps. And um, the data on boosting after J&J, just as your listener maybe was, was leading to, is that the messenger RNA, either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccines are better boosts after J&J than another dose of J&J. There may be some sort of interesting immunological reasons for that, but that's basically the takeaway. If you got J&J and you're not yet boosted, listeners run, don't walk to get a messenger RNA boost. If you have, you know, it, it, based on antibody levels, it probably puts you a little bit less than someone who's gotten three doses of mRNA, but better than someone who's gotten two. And so then we're somewhere in that between 30 and 75% probably. Um, but this is a little bit hand wavy. We don't have hard data. I would hope over the next month or so, we'd start to get that from the US where there are a number of people in that situation that we can start to study. And I do have a sort of tough eth- ethical question because this comes up with people who are so frustrated and they're worried about their loved ones. I mean, I, I fell yesterday. I'm like, okay, don't break any bones because I don't want to go to the emergency room, right? Yeah. So yeah. folks want to know, you know, why can't we, uh, you know, t- triage, people who are unvaccinated COVID patients above somebody who's in a car accident or uh, or a heart patient or something like that? Yeah, this is a a really hard question. I can understand the frustration. It's not how I guess I have been raised or whatever the word is in the medical profession to view medical ethics, right? We treat the patient in front of us, no matter what they've done to get there. It's obviously a different situation when there's not, and then that's one thing to say at full capacity and a different thing to say at limited capacity. And I, I guess the best thing I can say there is <laughs> it's a punt. I'm glad I'm not the one making those calls, right? I think the right way to, in my mind as a physician, the right way to treat the patients in front of me is to, even, even under situations of triage, is to try to triage based on likelihood of a good outcome. I don't know a better way, but that's so painful. It's like literally traumatic to even think about triaging in, in any setting, trying to triage care. So I, I don't have a good answer, I, I, except to say that you know, the, the folks, I'm not a public health expert. It's not, I haven't like gone to school or have degrees in that. The folks I know who do will say that that's not a productive way to view this from a public health standpoint, but that's not a persuasive stance to take, right? That doesn't get people less, you know, more persuaded to, to join your side and to get vaccinated. Similarly, sort of shaming and blaming is sort of, is counterproductive, even if it feels like how we feel sometimes. Um, I'm not saying if it was my parents in that situation or god forbid my kids in that situation i'd have the same i'd have the same feelings um, i'm not immune to them as a physician it's not how i am able to view that problem i guess um great thank you yeah. and yeah. i guess i have one more question about masking uh people want to know about n95s and cloth masks and things like that yes 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 um, so I would say there's a hierarchy of, of masks here that's become, I think it's been clear to the aerosol scientists all along. It's become more clear to us as we, us sort of clinicians as we go. And 95 is going to give you the most protection. Like that's the mask that I wear into the room of a COVID patient. Um, and will again, even with Omicron, right? Like that's, that's as good as it gets. Is it perfect? Probably not perfect. There's some degree of user error in how you put it on and, and all that, but it's, it's worked really well to keep healthcare providers safe to this point. I would expect that as transmissible as Omicron is, it's not like a physically different thing. And so that's 
the best you can do. But that said, again, I mentioned this last time I was on, we get fit tested once a year. Um, we, I shave more often when I'm on service because the seal matters and like even stubble can, like even this degree of stubble can sort of change um, how well it fits. And, and like it, you sort of, to wear it, it in the way that clinicians wear it, you have to take it fairly seriously. Um, there is a step down towards a, a KN95, um, which is a bit more, a bit more comfortable. So N95s to wear them all day, every day, we do it, but it's, it takes some getting used to. It's not, it's not a comfortable thing. It's pinches your bridge of your nose. It can start to wear the skin down there. You're, it's a bit uncomfortable for, for long stretches. KN95 is considerably more comfortable than that um, and still gives good, a good seal around your nose and mouth and, and better levels of protection. Surgical mask, I'd say is a pretty clear step down from that, but still good. And pretty good at protecting those around you also, right? So there you're starting to get into bi-level protection. So I think an N95 is like, if you've got one on, you're not quite bomb-proof, but you're as close as you can get. You're unlikely if you're wearing that well and not taking it off and not eating and not drinking and all that, you're not likely to get infected by even airborne viruses. Um, that's not true of a simple surgical mask. Um, but it is true that if you and everyone else around you are wearing them, you're unlikely, the person who might happen to be infected is unlikely to like generate enough um, infectious particles and transmit them around that you also with a mask around. It's like, those are both protective on both sides. And they probably actually help prevent spread more than they help prevent inhalation, if that makes sense, right? Um, that is mostly what we do in the hospital still um, for workers who are not, when you're not going to the room of a patient, everyone in the hospital is wearing a, a surgical mask. Um, I have to say, I'll be curious how that, if that practice persists during Omicron or if we try to upgrade, but right now that's still the practice at our hospitals that when you're not in the room of a known infection patient or a patient who, for who, whose status has not yet been determined, um, but you're just sort of going around the wards, you're in a simple surgical mask and everyone else is too. And we've not had a lot of outbreaks among, so we have plenty of people who get infected in the community, but not a lot of people are spreading it to their coworkers when everybody is wearing a mask. Um, but if like you're in a setting where you are and nobody else is, then you probably want one of the higher ones. If it's, if it's a thing that you value cloth masks, probably another step down, even from simple surgical. And it depends very much on the cloth mask. Like, you know, you shouldn't be able to, you certainly shouldn't be able to blow out a candle through it. You shouldn't even be able to feel breath on your hand, but there are some cloth masks where you can, and those are probably not doing a lot for you. Um, so yeah, there's, there's variability there. I think that as the virus gets more transmissible and as your stakes rise, like so much of this is individual. It's about if you are an immune compromised person, I would think hard about a KN95 or an N95, practice them, learn how to fit them. There's videos on, you know, online on, on, on how to sort of do a, a self test on us, you know, like a seal check and make sure you're not feeling air come up and that sort of thing. Um, if you're in a situation where everybody around you is wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask, then probably a surgical mask is, is good. Um, yeah, that's my my take on it. Ordering more K-N95s right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, yeah, that's one of the challenges that a lot of us have is what to do when you're around people who aren't taking things seriously. You know, if you're in a, if you have to, you know, a lot of people, sure, it's nice if you are fortunate enough to be able to work from home or in a, an office, but if you, you aren't, you know, when you have people at your workplace, for example, who aren't taking precautions, you know, what's, you know, how, how safe can you feel with your mask? And I think that's the sort of difficult situation that a lot of us are in, um, yeah. you know, yeah, in order that's to, true. in terms of knowing whether, you know, uh, how can you, how safe can you feel wearing your surgical mask? And it sounds like it helps, but it's, it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a suit of armor. Yeah. And, you know, I think nothing in life is perfect. And even more in the Omicron era, nothing's going to be perfect. And so I think some of it comes down to what are the stakes for you? Again, if you're someone with a real profound degree of immune suppression or who lives with someone like that, I would take that very seriously still. I think this is still likely to be a problem. If you're you know, 20 something, very healthy and also immune, you know, vaccinated and boosted, you know, the personal stakes to you are, are lower. And I think that is, it is okay at this stage for that to color how you act, right? Like, I think it, it has to be at some point. On the other hand, but like, I, I think you do have to, you know, for me, at least I have to take into it, I have to consider how I've been acting lately in terms of what I'm going to do next, right? Like, in the, you know, we're, we're hoping to see my 
in-law, my, you know, my wife's parents for the holidays. And um, we've been trying not to see, you know, we, we've been sort of trying to avoid people then for the last week or two, like they're vaccinated, they're boosted, but they're in there, you know, they're, they're pushing 70 and, and we don't want to expose them. And so I'm behaving differently in the last 10 days than I had been, you know, before that, um, not just because of Omicron, but also just because I have some situational awareness. It's, it's exhausting to think this way for me too, right? But it is how I have come to think. And I am hopeful there will be a time in the future when, you know, everybody has seen this virus enough or seen vaccines enough that it, it doesn't cause severe disease in many people. But I actually think that it, it for immune compromised people, it's going to be, a, it, I think it's, there's, this is a thing that didn't exist two years ago that exists now that's going to be a risk for them for a long time. And so I let that, you know, I, I have to sort of like, I have to have a little more situational awareness than I like to have, than I sort of would, would enjoy having. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for a lot of us who have, you know, for example, parents that were or in-laws that we are caring for, I think that it becomes, it, it definitely high, raises the stakes. I think this, and you know, I frankly think this raises the stakes, is starting to raise the stakes for all of us in terms of public policy as well. I think there, there was a, a period of time where, I think everyone was uh, eager to start focusing on other issues. Uh, and th- unfortunately, uh, yeah. I think our th- our attention has to refocus itself on this one. Yeah, it's tough, right? Because other things are, impor- are really important too. And in some ways, COVID has highlighted some of those things, right? There, there's th- This can't be the only thing that we as a society focus on. But if you don't, this is the sort of thing that if you don't focus on it, it has a way of taking your attention. And so it, it, it can't be the only thing that we legislate around, that we act around, that we plan our lives around. But it has to be a thing that we do all of those things for, or else it's going to just run rampant again, right? So it's hard. I, and I don't, I'm not trying to pretend I know the right balance for any of that, but... Um, and you know, you ask an ID doc, and I'm the guy who's seen all the worst cases overall. But you just look at the statistics, right? And like 800,000 Americans dead, and um, you know, million, many millions, uncounted millions of, of humans. And it's this is a this is worthy of of attention and careful consideration and careful policymaking. And um, <laughs> I, I wish I had more answers on that front. <laughs> well, one thing I do want to ask you uh, is what uh, you know. One thing that. Uh, folks have, you know, were saying early on was that Omicron at least was, wouldn't have quite the severe health consequences. And is that, you know, what evidence do we have on that one way or the other? And then separately, how do, you know, to the best of our data, the data so far, how do, how does being vaccinated or boosted impact that? Great question. And I think a really important one and one that has been like in the press and a lot in a way that I think is a little bit out over its skis, um, shall we say. So there's a couple different ways to think about that. Um, One is it has, and I, I think I got to this a little bit earlier, but it has clearly affected South Africa less severely than prior va- uh, viruses. But I want to try to separate, I actually think it's really important to try to separate out how much of that is because the virus may be less severe versus how much of that is because the society is more immune, is stronger. And in South Africa, because it's summer, because they're younger than, than we are. And I actually think all of the evidence so far is that... Um, Clearly, having a society that has a lot of immunity is is what is a lot, is the major the majority of what's causing it to have a, a weaker impact. And then secondarily, the fact that they are younger than we are is, I think, playing into that. So I'm going to try to unpack that a little bit because I think it's really important, and I'll get to why I think it's so important. So we don't really know how many people in South Africa have been infected. We they've measured three million cases. They have sixty million people, but it's probably it's well over seventy percent if you measure antibodies. It might be pushing ninety percent of people have been previously infected, even before Omicron came around. Again, remember it was enough that Delta, this really transmissible strain that was running rampant through our winter, was gone, and there were they were as few infections as they were early in the pandemic. And some of that is because they had a lot of immunity built up. Through, in, through prior infections. Okay, so that's the situation where Omicron came in. And fortunately, not a lot of people have died from a really high number of infections. But there's a, there's two things about that. One is there's a lot of people with immunity. And the second thing is more so, much more so than any previous variants, Omicron is good at infecting those people with immunity. And so when you count cases, the majority of the cases you're counting are among people who are at really low risk for severe disease because they have immunity. We don't really know 
So that, that's, that's to say it's having less severity because of the society it's infecting. That has nothing to do with the virus. We can't know what the virus would do on its own. So the real question is these thousand people a day in the U.S. who have been dying of Delta, the vast majority of whom are non-immune, what happens when Omicron finds them? And I think the answer is we don't really know. My default expectation, what I think is most likely, is that it's just as severe as any SARS-CoV-2 that came before it. And so I think per case, we are going to see much less death. In, even in the U.S., right, because so many people with immunity are going to get infected that we're just not getting infected at all before. But when it finds someone who doesn't have immunity, I don't think it's going to be any less severe. That is, I think the lower severity is a product of a society with a lot of immunity. I don't think it's a property of the virus. It might be. If we were really lucky, then maybe the virus has gone to become less severe also. But I don't see any evidence for that yet. And it's a really important question to answer. Um, but I just think we don't know yet. Um, and part of that is because in South Africa, there just weren't that many non-immune people left for this virus to find. So I think we'll learn this first, probably from the UK. They track these sorts of things very carefully. And I think in the, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get our first readout. Actually, they, they have some modeling studies that suggest there is no difference in, in intrinsic severity. Um, but it's a little bit early to, for me to, to put too much on that. Um, basically, what it means is they weren't able to prove that there was a difference yet. But it, the cases were so small that it's hard to say. But I think in like two or three weeks, we'll have a good readout. I want to be as clear as I can. I don't think we know yet that this is more or less severe. And I think it's a dangerous assumption to just be the rosy optimist and say, it's probably causing less severe disease. I think the reason we're seeing less deaths per case is simply because of immunity, which is great. It's wonderful. It, it's so much better than the alternative. And it means our vaccines are working well. They're holding up. It means prior infection is still protective. Um, this isn't just a totally fresh start. But it also means that if you are someone who's not had a vaccine yet, you're not going to be protected by that. Um, if you're someone who's immune compromised and can't mount a good immune response to vaccination, um, you're not going to be protected by that, right? That, then you're just going to be left to the devices of the virus. And I think, again, my default assumption is the virus is just as bad as it ever was. Well, I want to ask you one question on our way out, because I think this has been such a, an important conversation. A lot of us are dealing with uh, people that we know, relatives, friends who are stubborn about and getting a vaccine for one reason or another. How what, how do you convince people? What, what, what would be your recommendation for people who are reluctant to get vaccinated? Maybe they are worried about side effects of the vaccine. Maybe they believe they have some sort of natural healthy immunity or something like that. What would be your, what, what would be your suggestion to us when we're talking to people at our dinner table? Yeah, you know, Renato, I, I, I don't know that I have any magic here. I, I have tried a lot. Um, and what I have tried to do from the start is just to, for me, I go back to data. And I actually don't know how helpful that is. Um, the other thing is try to meet people. So from a persuasive standpoint, I think trying to meet people where they are and understand what their concerns are um, is really important. Um, the couple of things that I've that I will try is to point out that you know, if like if there is to acknowledge that there are some risks and some unknowns with it with the vaccines, um, but to point out that there are, in my mind, clearly more unknowns with the virus with a virus that's only been around for a year and a half at this point, um, that has clearly a lot of side effects. Right. So the alternative to a vaccine is not like no vaccine and living a happy, healthy life necessarily. Right. It's 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 COVID and all the uncertainties that come with that. And sometimes that I sometimes that helps. Um, the other thing um, that I will try is to point out that at this point, literally a billion people have gotten each of the messenger RNA vaccines. So it sounds like a new platform, but it's been built up over 20 years. Um, it's based on technology that's even older than that. Um, and it's and now we have this is the most scrutinized medical intervention probably in history, certainly the most scrutinized vaccine in history in terms of how carefully we've monitored this many people. We were able to find really like very rare severe side effects for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine after seven events, right? Like this, this blood clot problem that happens after Johnson is real. It's about one in a million. And we have, you know, monitored carefully enough that after just seven people had had it, we knew about it and we put a pause on and then we decided it was worth the risk and we, we restarted, but like we're taking all of the safety signals very carefully. And so it's well known. 
I, you know, people are worried about long-term side effects of the vaccines. And I guess, again, I come back to, I'm much more worried about the long-term side effects of the virus than the vaccine, um, like much more. And I think there's much, there's good evidence that the virus has long-term side effects. And I think that people with a vaccine will be less susceptible to that. Um, but to get back to your question, Renato, I don't know. Like, I don't think corners have been cut in the manufacturing of them. I think they were rolled out quickly, but a lot of that was kind of procedural. I think that, um, again, no scientific corners that, that I have seen. And I've looked very carefully before I put it in my body on the second day that I was eligible for it, before I put it in my daughter's body, the third day she was eligible for it. Um, and again, the only reason it wasn't the first is that we were too slow to sign up um, is because I, I just believe in them. But I don't. I, I get that that's not enough for everyone. And I, I don't have a magic answer. I think meeting people where they are, validating their concerns. And for in my case, trying to point out why I've come to the decisions that I have without browbeating people is the approach I've taken. I don't know how successful that is, but that, that's what I try. Well, you know, it's something I think some of us are going to be doing around the holidays. And, and I got to yeah. tell you, Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for the information you've given us. I, I learned some things, uh, some, some News I'd rather not be the case, but I, I want to know the truth. And I appreciate you for you know giving that to us straight here. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you're doing for uh, patients as well. Absolutely. Good to, good to chat with you again, Renato. Patty, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And I, I have ordered my N95s. <laughs> very good. Very good. I will tell you this before we go. Before we go, uh, while we were recording this, uh, my producer's son tested positive for COVID. These are eight. It's eight people in one week, folks. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it's 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 rolling. I have I have the same sort of text chain from from people I know too, unfortunately. Um, and I think you know we're gonna we're gonna hear a lot of this, unfortunately, over the holidays. You know, I guess the other the other point that we haven't brought up is testing. Um, it, it, among the many layers of protection. Rapid antigen tests still work. Nothing is perfect. They are not fail safe. But if you are gathering to meet, it is better to just if you can get a hold of them, get some of these antigen tests that are available at the drugstore and, you know, take them literally an hour before an event. And they are better. They are much, much better than nothing, even if they're not perfect. That's sort of the lesson here is that perfect is nothing is perfect, but good things are better than, than not. Right. Like a vaccine is not perfect, but it still provides a lot of protection. Tests are not perfect, but they still really help. Masks are not perfect, but they still really help. And the more things you layer on top, the better you're able to, you know, have a holiday without getting people sick. Um, and so we're not back at March 2020. And I, I feel like this is, I don't want this to be a complete downer for your listeners. Um, I, I get that things are worse right now than they were a month ago before we had heard about this this new variant. But, uh, but things are not as bad as they were in March 2020 and April 2020 by any stretch. Um, and I think the, the you know if you individually are vaccinated with a competent immune system, um, your individual outcomes are likely going to be all right. But unfortunately, as a society, we've struggled with that, right? Where individual outcomes are by and large mostly okay, but the societal harms are potentially really high. That's where I see our winter. And unfortunately, that's that's tough. Um, so for those of you who are doing your part, like for your listeners who are doing their part, thank you very much. I know it's hard. It's like we're all really tired. Um, but um, if, to the extent that you can keep fighting the good fight, thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us again. And uh, hopefully we won't. We won't need to have you on again in the near future. Yeah. I'd love to chat to catch up with you again, Renato, but maybe we can just celebrate the end of this whole thing next time. <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds good. All right. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.